sometimes when these challenges like um, the threats from the military really hinder the amazing work that the farmers are doing. For example, in our local organization in the north, we have this rice treasure that the farmers have been saving up for, the cooperative have been saving up for three years, and they finally bought these rice treasures to have a rice treasure that is accessible and virtually free. And then the military came and set it alight, set it on fire. And that's really frustrating. Many of our work are being set back by the government itself. And we are not doing anything wrong but helping these farmers. And these farmers helping themselves. You just heard from JC Mercado, an activist with the People's Coalition for Food Sovereignty, and specifically, he's its campaign and policy advocacy officer for its global secretariat. Now, Mercado was describing his own experience as a former activist with the Kirusang Makbubukid in Pilipinas, or the Peasant Movement of the Philippines, better known as KMP. And Mercado was both a former activist and a continuing collaborator with its activists. The Philippines is one of the deadliest countries in the world for environmental or land-based activists. In 2018, there were 30 such deaths. And in 2019, there were at least 43 such killings. That's according to the international human rights organization, Global Witness. The People's Coalition for Food Sovereignty describes it as a war against farmers and activists. And that's actually something you'll hear more from JC Mercado about. Now, as in many other agrarian countries, the Philippines also has a concentration of poverty in its rural areas, and that's linked to a highly unequal land ownership structure. The Philippines is suffering from the same kind of agrarian crisis, maybe even more intense forms of it, as described by Dr. Haru Nakramlodi in episode 17. These fundamental inequalities in the countryside have given rise to movements like the KMP, now, in contrast to some of the rich or capitalist farmer-led movements that we talked with Dr. Shreya Sinha about in episode 18, the KMP can more appropriately be described as one that is led or guided by the interests of the lower agrarian classes. And in fact, the scholar Dr. June Boris describes it as a movement that takes land redistribution and labor issues seriously as central demands. The KMP has also led the founding of international or transnational agrarian movements, including La Via Campesina and the People's Coalition for Food Sovereignty. And these organizations or movements, rather, are actively intervening in the United Nations and other fora, such as the Food and Agriculture Organization, to try and change the international rules of the game that benefit rich countries at the expense of the poor, especially when it comes to agrarian policy, as we discussed with Dr. Haru Nakramlodi. Now, many of the KMP's activists are vulnerable to extrajudicial killings because they have a left-wing orientation, and in particular, they're part of the National Democratic Movement of the Philippines. The National Democratic Movement sees the need for Philippine society to be changed root and branch by a people's democratic revolution, which places the interests of the workers and peasants in the driving seat and with a perspective to establish socialism in the long run. This orientation 
happens to be shared by one of the world's longest and largest left-wing insurgencies, which is led by the Communist Party of the Philippines and its guerrilla force, the New People's Army. They're inspired by Maoist theory, and they call for this agrarian revolution, which is based in the redistribution of land to the landless. But it's important to understand that in the Philippines, it's not just left-wing movements or left-wing insurgencies. Even the Muslim insurgencies in the southern island of Mindanao are arguably rooted in agrarian conflicts. Uh, that's a, at least according to Dr. June Boris. Now, I want to be clear here. The Kilusang Makbubukid in Pilipinas and the People's Coalition for Food Sovereignty share a broad ideological goal, but they are not part of the Communist Party of the Philippines or the New People's Army. They are separate organizations with separate tactics and approaches. But despite this, the government of the Philippines and its armed forces have done what is called red tagging. They will label peasant and environmental activists as communists or as guerrillas and then extrajudicially kill them, sometimes in broad daylight and sometimes in far more nefarious ways. And it's what makes the Philippines such a dangerous place to be an environmental or land activist. It also reminds us of just how political these kinds of questions about economics are. If economics is about the allocation of scarce resources like land, then there is a serious politics to that. So what is the agrarian political economy of the Philippines? What does land inequality and agrarian crisis look like? What are the gender dimensions of the agrarian problems here? And how does the country's entry into the world markets, foreign direct investment, under structural adjustment, impact its agrarian political economy? Welcome to Introduction to Political Economy, where we discuss the relationship between power and production, politics and economics, and a bunch of other stuff. I am your host, Numan Ali, Assistant Professor of Political Economy at the Lahore University of Management Sciences in Pakistan. Now, in this first part of a two-part podcast, we'll discuss with JC Mercado the agrarian political economy of the Philippines. In the next, we'll discuss the politics and aims of the KMP and the People's Coalition for Food Sovereignty. Now, please note, I recorded this interview nearly one year back in May 2020, and the sound quality is sometimes not that great. Let's hear from JC Mercado. My job entails me to um, kind of uh, propose, design, initiate, and lead the implementation of campaigns uh, as approved by our executive committee, and also um, come up with uh, policy research and uh, analysis and recommendations so that um, we will have campaigns from these recommendations there. And also now I'm the coordinator of BCFS Asia. And yeah, that's about it. That's about the work that I do. So how did you get involved in this kind of work? So you're saying first you were with the KMP or Kilusang Makpubukid in Pilipinas? I, yeah. I stayed up um, all night. Yeah, yeah, you said that perfectly. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I think you've been practicing that, no? <laughs> yes, exactly. So how did you get involved with KMP and uh, and then how did you get into PSCFS? So um, it started when I was in college, actually. I was an activist at our um, university. Uh, I'm from University of the Philippines. And then um, my course is really, really far from like rural development. It's physics. 
So when I was uh, doing this research um, about this one volcano in a province up north, uh, I was there for three months and I was acquainted with organizations under Kilosang um, Magbubukid ng Pilipinas or Peasant Movement in the Philippines. And then while I was doing my research, um, I was also helping them as an activist, of course, um, uh, who are working uh, with some of their counterparts in the city beforehand. Um, I kind of helped them um, set up their some of them their education committees, of course, uh, and also help some of their campaigns uh, against mining and uh, quarrying sites uh, that has been affecting their um, rice production. So that's what I was doing while I was uh, while I was studying the volcano, and then when my three months was up, I wasn't. We we were neck deep deep into this campaign so I wasn't just about to go home so I stayed there for seven years <laughs> and didn't come home uh, I worked with KM, uh, the regional um, uh, uh, chapter of KMP in the north for seven years uh, and I just went home like when my mom died like seven years after uh, and then, uh, because I was doing some of the work with my family um, after that, and uh, I was assigned to the national office, and they put me in their fisheries organization, which is Pamalakaya, which is also under uh, KMP. And then I worked for Pamalakaya for some years. And then they uh, after I have... Uh, um, done some work in Manila. Uh, they put me again in uh, in Mindanao, and uh, after uh, back and forth from Mindanao and Manila, uh, then I was assigned. Uh, no, I was uh, transferred to PCFS because, um, of course, uh, PCFS is doing. Uh, Tremendous work in um, in bridging uh, smallholder farmers and less farmers into creating a uh, uh, movement for food sovereignty and the right to food, and also um, exchanging and sharing experiences with organizations like KMP uh, in Pakistan, PKMT, uh, and KMP thought that it uh, the uh, the invaluable work that PCFS is doing is worth supporting. So, uh, because KMP is also one of the founders of PCFS, and then they assigned me to PCFS, and now I've been working in PCFS for the past two years. So, what motivates me is exactly what I saw. Uh, so, I've been in the peasant movement now since. Uh, for more than 13 years. So what motivates me is what I exactly saw when I was in those villages, helping them um, set up their education committees, analyzing what's happening with their crops, and actually 
um, doing work with some of the scientists that we have allied with, and then clearly pointing out the direct relationship between the quarrying and also the deterioration of the rice paddies and that fervor of the villages into creating this scientific and also um, and also um, rural-led movement that has swept me and has kept me going for all these years. So yeah, that's what motivates me. Okay, we're gonna have to we're gonna have to get into this a little bit more. Uh, before that, I want to ask what what are the kinds of challenges and frustrations that you face? Oh, of course, there were a lot because um, generally to be an activist in the Philippines is to have a huge target on your back already, and to be an activist aligned with a national democratic movement uh, is like be ha- having death threats every day and more more so um, working with KMP the largest and the most militant peasant movement in the Philippines uh, you're kind of like dead already (laughs) because um, uh, of course uh, when I was uh, um, organizing in some of the uh, in the countryside um, you will always be hounded by military, uh, and also I've been detained for more than uh, more than once. Uh, interrogations and, of course, uh, some uh, psychological torture. You're gonna threaten your family and all that. So th- that's the huge challenge uh, in the Philippines. Uh, your life is literally on the line when you're an activist, especially when you're an activist for and with the farmers. Uh, frustrations, of course. Uh, it's really frustrating uh, sometimes when these challenges like um, the threats from the military uh, really hinder the amazing work that the farmers are doing. For example, there's this, uh, in our local organization in the north, uh, we have this um, rice treasure that the farmers have been saving up for, the cooperatives have been saving up for like three years, and they finally bought this rice treasures, rice treasure to like um, have a rice treasure that is accessible and virtually free. And then the military came and, you know, set it alight, set it on fire. And that's really frustrating. Many of our work are being set back by uh, the government itself. And we are not doing, like, anything wrong but helping these farmers. And these farmers helping themselves. So that's really frustrating. But, of course... Um, we've come to live with it, and we, it, we've come to uh, we've come to um, create uh, numerous uh, tactics and strategies on how to um, move forward with our work despite all those attacks. 
Well, I, usually when I do this with professors or researchers and I ask them, what are your challenges and frustrations? Uh, death threats and physical violence rarely come up. They're usually like, <laughs> well, <laughs> I mean, they never come up. They've never come up. It's usually just like, I, I don't know. I, I, I wish I didn't have to deal with this or that part of my, my life. Um, so when you put this uh, in, in such stark terms that really some of the biggest challenges and frustrations aren't necessarily these subjective or internal things or small things, but it's really a matter of life and death. Um, then I guess the question is, why is it so serious? What is at stake in the Philippines around um, the work of peasants, around rural um, society? And so I yeah. guess on that level, if I can ask you, what is it? Uh, what is the Filipino uh, e rural social structure like? What is this, the politics of this? Can you give us an overview and, and an analysis of what's going on and why this thing then leads to such high stakes? Yeah, yeah. On the surface level, you will see that many of, of the campaigns of KMP and present um, organizations in the Philippines usually collide head-on with uh, large mining companies, large um, plantations, and uh, virtually entrenched landlords in um, local government units. Uh, so land problems in the Philippines are highly political because many... Uh, the only thing that's keeping the land in the hands of these landlords, corporations, and plantations are actually the political structure and the military structure around it uh, that protects these large land holdings. Because um, as it is, the peasant movement in, in the Philippines is really strong. But, of course, this systemic and this structural uh, problem of land ownership is being supported by the same political structure that has enabled it. So in the Philippines, for example, uh, as a whole, um, we have 13 million hectares uh, of agricultural lands in fact. They have revised this. This was in 1990s, and they have revised, revised this now into 9.67 million hectares of agricultural lands. Um, I'll get to that in a bit, but we have enough lands to feed our own. We have enough lands, in fact, to um, more than feed ourselves, to create cottage um, industries, and to create a rural development that really embodies uh, prosperity and all that. But uh, the problem is uh, many of these lands are not in the hands of the farmers of, or of those who want to really produce it, produce the food, produce um, uh, uh, the needs of the communities. Uh, so official estimates in the Philippines suggest that land concentration remain high despite we had 13 programs of land reform in more than 500 years. And up until now, more than 57% of the farms are less than one hectare. So that's really small. And um, only 0.003% uh, 
of the landowners on uh, more than 50 hectares of the land. That is uh, the official estimate. Uh, according to the uh, KMP, because KMP is present in 68 out of 72 provinces in the Philippines. So according to KMP, up until today, 7 out of 10 farmers don't own the land they till. And that is despite, again, 13 programs of land reform in the Philippines. So, for example, in Negros Oriental alone, Negros is a very, very political island where um, hundreds of farmers are being killed every um, regime. So, in Negros Oriental alone, only 10 families own 70% of agricultural lands. Most of these are plantations of sugarcane, uh, which uh, supplies to Coca-Cola, Nestle, and uh, other multinational corporations. So farmers there um, take home, even up until today, around uh, less than $1 a day uh, for a day's work. Uh, landless workers in the Philippines, for example, in Hacienda Luisita in 2013, that's the most dire that we have seen. That in a week, in a week's work, a landless farmer would take home uh, nine pesos. That's about four cents, uh, four cents of a dollar. Uh, in a week's work. So landlessness is really a systemic problem in the Philippines. It's the root cause of poverty, rural poverty in the Philippines. And it's the root cause of all the other um, feudal and semi-feudal uh, relations that stem from it. So even the latest uh, land reform in the Philippines CARP, which I think we will talk about later, says that 93% of the remaining balance of its redistribution are private agricultural land holdings. So even after 13 programs of land reform, most of those quote-unquote distributed lands are public lands. So mountainous, inclined lands, and generally previously lagging concessions, uh, mining concessions, which are uh, sometimes productive, sometimes not. But 93% of the backlogs of the 8 million hectares that was supposed to be distributed are private agricultural land holdings. So basically, the colonial um, vestiges of large plantations in the Philippines since the Spanish times are remain intact and in the hands of this very powerful landlord elites. So that's the, the well from where this fervor for land reform swells. And also that's the same well where this violence of these landlords and, of course, the enabling policies uh, against the farmers, that's the well where it comes from too. So their power comes from these large land holdings and their power reinforces their um, hold 
to these large land holdings. And that's why it's really deadly. That's why um, I think it was a global witness who said that uh, in 2018, the Philippines is the deadliest um, country for farmers. Yeah, for farmers, for defenders of the land, for defenders of environmental causes, Philippines is the deadliest yeah. country. Uh, that's uh, that's very uh, jarring and, and striking because usually, for example, people might think of Colombia. I was in Colombia last year and I just realized how yeah. violent uh, Colombia was. But the uh, but Philippines is, is even worse in that sense. Um, just in terms of what you were talking about, in terms of this colonial structure, feudal structure that has not really significantly changed over uh, the last, um, say, 100 years, 1898, I think, is when the United States took over Philippines, and then 1945 is when the Philippines got its independence from the United States. Um, and we'll you. talk about that uh, in a bit. Um, but what about... Uh, and you've described these harrowing conditions in the countryside. What is the the um, position of women in uh, in all of this? Like, what is the gender division of labor? What kind of land rights do women have? Do they have land rights at all? Uh, and how does how does this impact on gender relations? Okay, so um, before that, I would just like to point out that. Uh, uh, the farmers in the Philippines are not, I, while most are landless, uh, farmers in the Philippines are generally fragmented because of the entry of capitalist relations. So there had been um, uh, capitalist farmers, uh, which we call rich farmers, because uh, they own... Uh, uh, they own just enough land, but they uh, most of them farm are are have become like um, adjuncts of um, of uh, huge compradors like uh, plant plant uh, small plantations uh, for sugar corn uh, etc. So. There's been, through the years, there's been a segmentation of the farmers in the Philippines. So you have, like, the landless farmers and the small farmers, which comprise, like, more than 70%. And then you have the, what we call middle peasants. So the middle peasants uh, comprise around uh, 15%. And some uh, 5% are um, rich peasants which own like um, five to 10 hectares of land and uh, do not till all the lands uh, uh, that they own or rent, but they participate um, in the production. And then you have the small, uh, and then you have the landlords. So, even the position of women is segmented in those portions because, for example, the really stereotyped gender role, gendered roles in production uh, really persists in middle, uh, in middle peasants and rich peasants. So um, uh, women in those households 
uh, do pre-production and post-production. Like, for example, uh, they would do, uh, they would take care of the storage, they would take care of the livestock, of, of the additional incomes. They would take care of, for example, if it's a tourism village, they would take care of that uh, portion of their income. So, but that uh, doesn't apply generally to landless and small farmers because you don't have, uh, many of them don't have the luxury of like dividing uh, gendered um, roles in um, production. So in a rural village, you typically find like a woman farmer tending to the land uh, on her own, uh, especially for small uh, farmers, for landless farmers to, uh, for women landless farmers to go around in different villages and find any work they can. So if that entails like harvesting, etc. So that those roles have become um, for the landless. That has become also a role for women now. Uh, uh, yeah. So generally, uh, women play a huge role in production in the countryside, especially in pre and post production. But that's being blurred. Uh, that role is being blurred mainly in landless farmers and smallholder farmers where they don't really have the luxury to have that division. And that division doesn't um, really give them value or adds value to their household. So, yeah. But, of course, um, uh, KMP also has Amihan. Uh Amian is the Amian Women's Federation. Uh, Amian tackles that there's while that there's another pillar that oppresses women in the countryside uh, while they are being oppressed as farmers by landlords, by political subjugation, by cultural subjugation from the Catholic Church, and generally. Uh, uh, there's there's a subjugation of um, patriarchy from within the family and from society. So generally, in organized, um, a part of organizing in KMP is also um, uh, uh, women empowerment and uh, the. Because for KMP and for the peasant movement in the Philippines, um, empowerment of rural women really stems from their um, being taken away from production and from political participation. So that's the goal, to return and to empower women to participate in production and also in um, political participation. If I can ask you for a bit more detail on this, uh, so let's compare yeah, with Pakistan, sure. for example. In in Pakistan, the ideal um, of uh, of a woman's um, existence is that she not leave the household, that she not leave the home, 
and generally the the middle the aspiration of the middle class uh, is or you know your middle class when you can afford to pull pull women out of production and women in public spaces is seen as a as a negative thing and as a as a problem that that said as you described similarly in Pakistan women play very essential roles in production especially in rural production um, but it's undervalued it's seen as non-existent um, and it's seen as something that shouldn't be happening the ideal as i said is that women stay within the household so is that something that that's similar to the philippines um that's now the exception because of course um as i have said uh poor families rural poor families cannot afford to have women stay at home uh because they need the hands uh in the fields and of course uh especially when they're selling their labor power so when they're uh where they when they're being hired as agriculture uh, as farm workers um to ha- uh two incomes are always better than one so that's definitely dissolving in uh in poor families but that notion is of course alive in some of the sections of the middle and to some extent the rich uh, farmers but on the other hand the Philippines is one of the poster child of gender empowerment um, putting women to work uh, of the 1980s to 1990s really so um, the waning influence of the Catholic Church and also the um, and also the need uh, for um, labor export many of our Many of our uh, overseas Filipino workers, especially in the 1980s and 90s, are women. You know, that's why in the U.S. where uh, uh, some stereotype Filipino women as, um, what do you call that, uh, house help, especially uh, now in Hong Kong, etc. So uh, that stereotype also uh, put a chip on the notion that women should stay home because it's an economic necessity for the government to really sell the bodies of this uh, of the women outside so you re- you really have to get them outside their homes so that wave of on one hand uh, proletarianization and really being dirt poor that you can't afford these ideals and on the other hand, the government um, pushing for labor export policy, which needs women, has contributed to this really nominal, quote-unquote, um, freedom for women to work. So that's the exception in the Philippines, to think that women should stay at home. I mean, there's still that notion, but in practice... Uh, that's being broken down by economic pressures uh, of being an OFW, looking for opportunities for mobility, or 
uh, you know, just being poor and not having to afford these ideals. And overall, how much of the of the population in the Philippines would you say is in rural society as opposed to urban society? Because there must be a lot of migration from rural areas to urban areas also. Yeah, um, according to the official estimates of the government, uh, 25% of the Philippines is now urbanized and 75% is rural. But if we're... Uh, if we're looking at how some of these cities are considered urban, but in fact they're just uh, they're commercial centers, small islands of commercial centers amid the sea of um, feudalism and rice paddies. Even some of the cities in the Philippines, smaller cities, considered cities, are uh, really just a small um, commercial hub. But most of the city are still uh, rice paddies or cornfields. So for KMP, at least uh, more than eighty percent, or more than uh, more than eighty percent are still uh, rural population. That's a uh, that's a lot. <laughs> I mean, in Pakistan, there's always a debate about what is urban and what is not urban. Um, I think there's a few things that you mentioned that that uh, uh, I wonder if we can get a bit more of an understanding in a, in a kind of a global political economic sense. You talked about how many of the uh, plantations in Negros and uh, just to be clear, uh, a plantation is like a large, like a huge chunk of land, which is devoted to growing basically one thing like sugarcane. Yes. And then the, yes. the processing facilities are also located on that on that same uh, premises uh, um, and so it's run mainly by by waged workers who are hired specifically okay. to to do the the farming uh, and so you mentioned that this is linked or integrated with multinational corporations like Nestle like Coca Cola yeah. how there's a lot of mining going on in the Philippines and that's also uh, probably integrated with multinational corporations and also that labor export began in the 1980s and 1990s. So this uh, uh, maybe era corresponds to uh, the era of structural adjustment. Has that had, what kind of role has that had? Like, can you say there's a decisive pre-structural adjustment and post-structural adjustment Philippines? Yeah, there definitely is. So at the end of the 1960s, um, most of the lands, even those who uh, which are which should be considered forest lands have been saturated. So what happened was uh, in the past, uh, there were the, these programs of quote-unquote land reforms to give land to the farmers. And then what it entails is like migrating people from one island to another so that they can uh, open up uh, and uh, tail those lands. And then, like, uh, some landlord would claim it, etc. So that has been the story uh, since the American colonization of the farmers from homestead law uh, up to Makapagal. And then, by the end of 1960s, that isn't possible anymore because you don't have this uh, large tracts of land left by logging concessions to, quote-unquote, give to the farmers to tell um, and then, then came structural adjustment programs, 
So that really put a pivot in the Philippines. So uh, from the entry of, for example, Masagana 99 uh, is one of the flagship programs of the Marcos dictatorship, uh, which is uh, the entry of hybrid and G, uh, genetically modified corn, uh, expansion of plantations of sugar in uh, uh, Negros and Central Luzon, and uh, especially uh, expansion of banana and uh, palm oil and um, pineapple plantations in Mindanao, and increased quota on sugar and oil uh, exports in the Philippines. So in the 1970s and 80s, that completely restructured the Philippine agriculture from basically a self-sufficient, self-feeding rural economy to an entirely cash-based economy. Not that the cash-based economy wasn't there, but these were like uh, deals and transactions being made by plantations and multinational corporations on their own. But the entry of structural adjustment programs through Masagana 99 has uh, put up more than a thousand commercial rural cooperative banks funded by uh, IMF World Bank to really introduce and fund and bankroll the entry of these seeds. Uh, many farmers who were previously um, uh, planting rice have. Uh, uh, turned to corn and then uh, huge projects like for example the entry of uh, Dole in Mindanao has turned uh, these islands of cash-based economy to being the rule rather than the exception. So on the macro level this means depending on agriculture and fisheries export as a way to obtain reserve dollars but the production of such commodities also require a lot of imports from seeds to pesticides, of course, machineries uh, in plantations and tools for storage and for transport. That's why since then, the Philippines had this huge uh, and persistent agricultural trade deficit. So, for example, uh, 2018... We had $8 billion in agriculture trade deficit, which is the largest in the entire history of the Philippines. Uh, on the other hand, food baskets, which, uh, of course, where the whole nation is depending on for their food, especially our staple, which is rice. We love rice. Has become adjuncts of export businesses. So uh, now we have been reliant on imports for our domestic needs. Uh, this is especially felt uh, by the fishery sector. So since the 1980s, which we have been self-sufficient, and of course, in the Philippines, fish is a huge um, part of the Filipino diet because uh, uh, the poor, especially the rural poor, get, poor get 60% to 80% of their protein from fish meat. So that's really a huge part of the calorie intake 
of the Filipino household. So what happened was um, the import of this um, of fish from other countries. Imagine being an island country with 7,000 islands and more than a million fish are full. We are importing fish from um, uh, from other countries. And some of them, for example, Japanese vessels uh, were found to be fishing on our grounds and selling it to us as imports. And that was completely legal because they were flying their flag. So that has transformed our um, uh, food paradigm from being self-sufficient into an... Now, we are the uh, biggest importer of rice in the world, Uh, which, you know, 10 years ago, we were um, 99.98% self-sufficient on rice. So this was specially um, cemented by the entry of the Philippines in uh, General Agreement on Tariff and Trade, and later on in the World Trade Organization in 1995. And this has sealed this agricultural model of export-oriented agricultural production, which is um, uh, input-intensive, which is um, um, import-reliant. And then uh, being dependent on the import for our food. So there's been a huge disjunct between the farmers and then the consumers. So they have pitted the consumers against the farmers that, oh, we have to import this because it's um, you know, it's more cheap. And then the farmers would go bankrupt because uh, you cannot compete with garlic from Taiwan, for example, which are bigger and which are uh, cheaper uh especially rice, for example, uh, and corn and wheat from the U.S., which they've dumped to us with, on, a, uh, on a very subsidized price. And so most of our farmers had to transition from farming rice and other needs to farming this high-yielding varieties or high-yielding um, uh, high-value crops like corn, cassava, etc. for export. So that process has cemented the biggest um, source of food crisis in the Philippines, that huge disjunct between being an agricultural country capable of producing food uh, and, on the other hand, importing so much food from these heavily subsidized uh, countries. And that puts the interest, quote-unquote, of the consumers for cheap prices and the interest of the farmers for, you know, competitive prices uh, for the crops because, uh, you know, the farm gate prices would be definitely so low um, after um, flooding us with imports. So plantation slugging companies and mining companies greatly contributed also to the deforestation in the Philippines since the structural adjustment programs. And then, for example, Cavendish banana, the largest export in the Philippines in volume, occupy more than 100,000 hectares 
of land in Mindanao owned by Dole uh, and Stanfilco and other subsidiaries, which pay approximately $20 per hectare to the government in rent by virtue of the land deals that were done under the Structural Adjustment Program. So even the expansion of these plantations up to today uh, are covered by this provision. So they're basically not paying the agriculture workers. They're not paying our government in taxes, but they are uh, plundering our lands for Cavendish banana to be exported in Japan, South Korea, and uh, other um, East Asian countries. Wow. So basically, what I've what I've gotten from you, if, uh, which is a lot, if I can if I can really condense it, it's on one hand, um, even before what you're describing as a structural adjustment period, which really changes the rural economy. Uh, at least Philippines was self sufficient, but there was still a lot of inequality in land ownership. There was still a lot of problems in the rural areas. But when you open it up to to become this entirely commercialized, cash-based, export-oriented society, you lose your overall self-sufficiency, you become reliant on imports. Uh, so on one hand, you're, you're reliant on uh, exports, which is dominated by these large corporations, and then you're reliant on imports for your basic needs. Uh, fish, rice are your basic staple crops, but they're completely um, dependent on the world market. And those two things are connected. The unequal, unequal land ownership is absolutely necessary for this kind of export-oriented agriculture. Definitely, definitely, it's the it's the base. It's the social base of um, uh, basically imperialist plunder in the Philippines. So without large concentration of land in the hands of these landlords, and putting this huge societal transformations, quote-unquote, uh, in effect in virtually one decade, that would be impossible without large uh, land ownership. That's really intense. Um, let, let me ask a, a more contemporary question in terms of just the COVID-19 lockdown. The Philippines has, uh, apparently has one of the most the strictest uh, militarized lockdowns in Asia. Uh, and what kind of effect has that had uh, on on rural society and rural economy? Right. Okay. So we've been in uh, we we've had the longest lockdown. Uh, we've been in lockdown since February, uh, and it comprises um, the largest um, island in our country. So Luzon has been on lockdown for for more than a month, and that includes many of our food baskets or what's left of it. Uh, of course, at the surface surface level, logistic issues are at the forefront of the problem of the farmers. Many uh, When the national capital region was on lockdown, many of the farmers cannot get their um, uh, produce into the city, which is the largest market. But uh, that's just a proverbial straw that broke the camel's back, as we say. Even before the lockdown, the Philippines is in a huge agrarian crisis. So, um, for example, um, in every cropping, 
you'd have this display of huge food loss and food waste because of the um, huge drops in farm gate prices. For example, last year we had tomatoes where you had tons and tons of um, ripe tomatoes in farms. So what's happening in the world today where people are talking about, oh, they're dumping milk, oh, they're dumping um, tomatoes, oh, they're letting the um, eggplants rot in the fields. It's happening in the Philippines periodically uh, in different crops at different times uh, because when the prices uh, on the international level changes even a bit, um, the long chain of uh, the long exploitative chain of merchants and uh, compradors take uh, uh, pass the risk onto the farmers, onto the next level. And then when it comes to the farmers, that risk is too huge that um, farm gate prices would fall, for example, one peso for tomatoes. And that would be one peso is much is point zero zero five cents cents no, dollars. So half a cent. One kilo of tomatoes. And even if you like uh, that won't be enough to you know uh, pay for the ha- uh, people who harvest it, pay for the truck or pay for even the small um, uh, transportation that you would need, that wouldn't cover that. So we have this punctures, uh, periodic and persistent punctures of um, uh, devastation in different crops. But now, under COVID-19, that has happened on a whole new scale. Uh, One huge example is rice. So last year, uh, the Congress just passed the rice liberalization law, uh, and it has opened the floodgates of rice imports by huge importation moguls, really. So rice farmers since 2017, according to OECD, has been the poorest of the poor because, you know, uh, WTO won't let the government uh, subsidize the farmers. And the government, of course, uh, being uh, usually uh, being run by many landlords and importation moguls are really happy to uh, to do that to uh, cut back on uh, subsidies to the farmers in favor of these imports. So when this happened, when rice liberalization law was uh, passed, rice farmers lost around 1.3 million dollars in revenue. And uh, that has been compound. Uh, that was because the farm gate prices fell from half a dollar to basically a quarter of a dollar. Uh, yeah. Uh, in some uh, extreme cases, it fell to um, uh, 15 to 20 cents. Uh, per kilo. So, 
you know, as we all know, the global rice market is really, really narrow. Only 9.7 of the global production end up in the global market. But the strength that it has in determining the prices on a national level, especially for us, rice importing country, has a huge impact on uh, the rice farmers. So rice farmers, uh, I can say that rice farmers are the most devastated in, amid this COVID-19. Uh, and especially, of course, um, um, poor landless households in rice farming communities. Uh, because uh, we are virtually um, importing almost a third of our rice uh, from abroad now. So pre-WTO, we had 99.4% of rice self-sufficiency and then it shrunk in 2016 to 89%. And now it has shrunk again by 2%. So it's... Uh, but even then, that small portion is the most decisive in how the rice farmers will eat this crappy, how the, how the rice prices in our supermarkets will be, and not the 89, uh, the 87% of the farmers' produce. So that uh, we have experienced more than 26% of jump in food prices in the city uh, since the lockdown. Uh, and that's according to the official estimate, of course. The government has put in price freezes, but not in, but did not include rice. They have price freeze in garlic, I think onion, potato, and two more crops. But generally, the Philippines don't have the reserves to back it up. Because we have, I think, I don't know about Pakistan, but in India, they have this uh, like food authority, food um, corporation that buys up the um, uh, agriculture produce from the farmers and then that really, uh, and then stock that and then use that stock to like stabilize the prices. In the Philippines, since, the w, since 1995, uh, we have essentially privatized um, the rice reserves in the Philippines. So more than uh, more than 30% of our rice reserves are in the hands of uh, of traders, so private corporations. And then more than 30%, another 30% is in the households. So uh, that's uh, part of a reserve of the Philippines, and then government now holds less than a third of the rice reserves in the Philippines. So, of course, manipulative price, that's really, really prone to manipulative pricing, and we have gone through many, many episodes of this um, manipulative pricing in rice in the Philippines, and even now, under COVID-19, that's not an exception, because Essentially, the government is handing out importation certificates to these large companies. Now they have, they are dwarfing the reserves of rice 
uh, that are in the hands of the government. So basically, monopoly pricing is, you know, and is uh, like a reality at this point. So there, uh, uh, other farmers, uh, of course, who are outside the lockdown, um, generally don't have protection. So it's really, really funny because uh, recently we had this um, webinar with KMP, and it's really funny how like the farmers are the most neglected part of society, but now they have been catapulted as like heroes and then uh, they call them now essential workers but then they don't pay them like uh, we we don't have any program to protect our farmers uh, in the Philippines this is all across the board like uh, 7 out of 10 Filipinos die without even seeing a doctor so we have really really privatized um, uh hospitals and that's an understatement when you come to the countryside because many of the rural areas don't even have hospitals you would have to like um, walk for in some of our areas in Mindanao you have to walk for eight hours sometimes more than a day so that you can see like a small clinic uh, and you know farmers don't have the protection safety nets uh, that some of the portions, some of the upper portions of the society can afford in this COVID-19 uh, scenario. And, you know, that's why in PCFS, we recently said that, you know, the rural uh, sector is really a ticking time bomb because, you know, having no access to healthcare whatsoever and uh, you don't even have the culture of going to hospitals when you have, you know, uh, when you feel something's wrong in your body is a huge, huge disadvantage. I mean, this pandemic where, you know, we have this common uh, enemy, quote-unquote, of the virus. But the rural people, are the most vulnerable even before the pandemic and now they are the most at risk of contracting the virus of being uh, of, uh, experiencing hunger and of generally losing their livelihood.